The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. And so church, no, no promises, uh, but we might, we might be at the Methodist to lunch uh, today. So I, I know I, I told Miss, I told Miss Susan that this is going to be a shorter sermon and she just started laughing in my face. So we'll, we'll see how it all pans out, but, uh, but you know, we, we might. So this morning we're, we're going to take a pause from going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, I know last Sunday it was, it was a heavy sermon. Um, it was a very heavy and weighty sermon. And so the, the next passage in Ephesians is also a pretty weight, weighty and heavy sermon. So I figured let, let's give us a break a little bit to exhale uh, through, the, through the Psalms. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll go right back into the book of Ephesians. And so with that being said, you can turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. And so for everybody who was at the Wednesday Fellowship, you got a small little uh, preview of the sermon this morning. Uh, but, but you can turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. It's one of my favorite psalms in, in, all, um, in, in all of the psalms, uh, but, uh, but it, it has ministered to me throughout the years. And I pray the Lord will do so to you through this psalm as well. Psalm chapter 16. The Lord through David says this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Why? Because the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh is also, also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your hand, right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would set a feast before us this morning through your word. That we would taste and see that you are good. That these wouldn't just be words on a page, but that they, that they would be truth by which we live and move and have our being. And so I, I pray as we see this morning, Lord, you, that you are our God, that you are our good and you are our life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate your truth for us. You would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. So that we would walk away changed and in greater love for you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, so first notice with me how David begins the psalm. It, it, it's with a prayer asking for God to preserve him, to protect him, to keep him, to hold him fast. Because it was in the Lord that David sought refuge 
And so listen, when, when the storms of life, when they come your way, right, and they will, maybe you're in that season right now. Where do you run for refuge? When the waves of temptation, when they roll up upon your soul, what is your prayer? I, I grew up in, and actually Don uh, Henshaw helped uh, to remind me this past week, but I grew up in South Oklahoma City, and so I vividly remembered when the May 3rd, 1999 tornado rolled through more in South Oklahoma City. I, I remember piling into our tiny little coat closet in our house, uh, along with my three siblings, we had our baseball helmets on, and we had cushions and pillows all around us. And so even as a six-year-old, I keenly remembered the seriousness of that situation. But, but more importantly than, than remembering, uh, you know, that what was what uh, Gary England said on News 9 uh, and all of that, you know, take your tornado precautions. He was famous for saying that. But more importantly, that evening and that day, I remember the prayers of my mother where she would ask, where she asked the Lord to protect us. Because my mother understood that it wasn't in the closet where we were going to find refuge from the tornado. Our only refuge, our only protection, our only security in that moment, it was not in a closet, but it was in the Lord. And so, yes, she prepared us by getting us into the closet, but she prayed and she trusted in the Lord to be our refuge. And so now if David, if, if in this psalm he was seeking refuge in the Lord... I think it's important for us to ask or even to think about, okay, what was he seeking refuge from? What was it that was threatening him? We only seek refuge if we feel threatened, right? And so it's impossible for us to know for certain. You know, as you read through the Psalms, you'll notice in some of the Psalms, like David or the psalmist will give us a preface, kind of set the context for what was going on while the psalmist wrote the psalm. We don't get that with this psalm. And so we can't know for certain. We, we do know that David was constantly on the run for his life prior to the kingship and that Israel was frequently in battle under his kingship. However, I, I don't think that it was a physical threat that David was seeking the Lord to find refuge from. But I think rather it was a threat to his soul. In commenting on this psalm, John Piper, and, I, and I, uh, I, think, I think he's right, he said that he believes what David was seeking refuge from was the temptation found in verse 4. And so read with me verse 4, where David says this, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And, and so in other words, I think maybe David's elongated prayer may have gone something like this. Oh, Lord, I feel the temptations rising up within me to run and to chase after the things of this world. The the idolatries of power, of possessions, of pleasure, of prestige and other things. I I feel it within me, oh, Lord, to run after these temptations that could never satisfy my soul. But because you are my God, because you are the true and living God, preserve me. Keep me from chasing after those temptations. Things. Don't let my soul be enchanted by the idolatries of this world, but rather by your preserving and your sustaining grace. Keep me wholly committed unto you. For in you alone, O oh Lord, do I take refuge. We, we, we get the cliff notes of David's prayer here in verse 1, but I, but I think something to that effect 
was the longer version of it. And so, so I want to ask you again, church, where do you find refuge? When, when the stresses of life multiply, <laughs> when you encounter suffering or tragedy, when, when you're struggling with some sort of inner turmoil or conflict, when, when you are faced with difficult situations and difficult decisions to make, where do you go to find refuge? Do, do you seek solace through escapism? What do I mean by that? Trying to withdraw and detach yourself from your situation through entertainment, through social media, maybe through some sort of addiction. Or maybe are you the type of person you don't try to escape from your situation. Maybe you find yourself constantly dwelling upon your situation. You jump on the hamster wheel of the woe is me and the self-pity kind of thinking, right? And you think, why is this happening to me? Or, or, or maybe, maybe you just maybe maybe your coping mechanism is you just try to trivialize and make light of the situation. Maybe you dismiss it away and you try to dance around having to process your emotions by by the saying the tagline, "Oh, it all work out in the end," right? And so you don't address your situation head on. How do you respond to the difficulties and the temptations of life? Where do you run for refuge? I want to encourage you this morning. Don't run from your situation, but run to the Lord amid your situation in whatever you find yourself in. Now, now why do we run to the Lord in our times of trouble? Well, David tells us here because he is our sovereign Lord. Notice with me what David says in verse two. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, now, you might be thinking, David, that's a bit redundant. You're saying, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. That, that's, that's quite obvious, right? That, that's what it means to become a Christian, right? We confess Jesus as Lord. That's a prerequisite to following Jesus. It's confessing him as Lord. But listen, it does good to our souls to remind ourselves and to confess back to the Lord in times of trouble the truths that we believe. That, that our situation, it isn't our Lord. Our, our emotions, they aren't our Lord. The idolatries and the temptations of this world, they're not our Lord either. No, our God, he is the Lord. He's the one who calls the shots in our lives. And so it does good for our souls when in those times of difficult situations, in those times of temptations, to confess and to pray back to the Lord what we already know to be true. I say to the Lord, at the deepest core of my being, I confess, you are my Lord. And therefore, I will go and I will run to you. You, you have my heart in this situation. Notice, though, not only is, the, is God our Lord, right? But verse 5, David says, he is our sovereign Lord. Notice especially that last line in verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. And so listen, church, I want to remind you that not one thing happens in this universe apart from the permitting or the ordaining work of our God. In all situations, he is the one who is in control with all power, ultimately orchestrating it all for your good. 
And so whether you find yourself maybe in a bitter or in a pleasant providence right now, listen, church, our God, he is the one who holds your lot. And so if you find yourself in a pleasant situation, remember, it's not by the work of your hands. It's not by your doing. It's by God's doing that you find yourself in that situation. And if you find yourself in a bitter providence, remember, God is doing a work you maybe cannot see right now. But he is working. He's promised for the good of his people to, to work all things together for good. And so that's why as Christians, as children of the living, the sovereign Lord, that in whatever situation in life we face, we can confidently say, as David says in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And so because he is, we confess back to him. Therefore, I will take refuge in you. I will trust in you. I will rest contented in you because you hold my life in your sovereign, in your nail-pierced hands. But not only does David say that the Lord is our God, notice also, secondly, David says that the Lord, he is our good. Read verse 2 with me where David says this. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And so David, he reiterates the same truth in verse 5 where he says, The Lord, he is my chosen portion in my cup. He, 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 he says the same thing from a different perspective there. And so what does it mean for the Lord to be our good? But before we answer that question, it's helpful maybe for us to ask and answer this question. What, what, does it, what do we mean when we say something is good? What, what, does it make, what makes something good or not good? At its core, what is, what is goodness? I, I think we, we say that reflexively. We say that just maybe without even thinking, we call something good or we call something not good. What we might say, though, if we were to think about it for a bit, we might say something is good, right? If it possesses a sense of maybe moral purity, a sense of righteousness, mercy, beauty, pleasure, security, Right? We say something is good if, it, if something has personal benefit to us. And, and, and there are maybe other descriptions that I'm leaving out as well. But while these attributes, they describe what goodness is, listen, there is only one proper and perfect definition of goodness. And that is God himself. Our God, he is the standard. He is the source he is the supplier. He is the sum. And he is the substance of all that is good. So first, God, he is the standard of all goodness. Jesus said in Luke 18, he said, no one is good but God alone. In scripture, especially in the Psalms, it repeatedly affirms that the Lord, he is good. Wayne Grudem, he, he is an author and a Theologian, he said, he said, he put it this way. He said, there is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and his approval of whatever is consistent with that character. So God himself, he is the objective standard of what is good. And so when we say someone, someone or something is good, whether we know it or not, we in effect are saying this person or this experience, it contains reflections of God's character. If he is the standard by which we judge what is good, if something is good, then, then that something or that someone, they have a reflection of God's character. Because he alone, he is the standard of all goodness. 
And so if he is the standard, then listen, church, what, what's the point? If he is the standard, then listen, nothing can compare with the goodness of our God. Everything else is compared to God's goodness. Nothing compares with God's goodness. He is the standard of all that is good. But also he is the source and the supplier of goodness. James 1.17 says this, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. God, he, our God, he is the fountainhead of all that is good. And so all the goodness we experience in this lifetime, it comes from his paternal hand. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he, he said this. He said, which, 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 which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, who's going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, who's, who's going to give him a, a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good, give, give good things to those who ask him? And so in effect, Jesus, he is saying, because our Father in heaven, because he is the supplier and the source of all goodness, therefore ask, seek, knock, for you will find. He is the source and the supplier of all that is good. And then finally, our God, he is the sum and the substance of all that is good. What, okay, so some fancy words, what does that mean? It means that all the good we experience in this lifetime, listen, it is but crumbs when compared to the feast of goodness that is contained within God himself. Those moments of your life where you've experienced the highest good, listen, nothing, nothing compares to our God, for he is the sum and the substance of all that is good. I've used this quote before from Jonathan Edwards in a previous sermon, but I think it bears repeating, and so follow with me. Uh, But speaking on the goodness of God, Edwards, he said this. He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper, and it is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, to fully enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. And he says, these, they are but shadows. We, we get glimpses of God's goodness in these things. The, these are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God himself, that is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God, he is the fountain. These are but drops, but God, he is the ocean. What awaits us one day, church? when we get to heaven and we get to experience the goodness of God in his fullness. There's a feast that awaits us one day on that day when we close our eyes in this lifetime and we awake to behold the face of Jesus. He is the sum and the substance of all that is good. Yesterday, we were, uh, my brother and sister-in-law, which you have met, uh, they're, they're leaving to go back to Southeast Asia here soon. And so we're spending most of our weekends in Oklahoma City uh, trying to soak up the time we have with them. And, and, yet, and yesterday we were at my parents' house and, and Noah, he was talking about something and, and he was comparing two things to one another. And he, he said this, which I thought, man, I didn't know it was going to fit in well with my sermon. But he said this, he said, this is gooder than that. And, uh, and so, listen, so listen, I just want you to be encouraged. He's already learning some true Okie language, right? Gooder, you know. 
but but while but while you know obviously that's not a right word. Uh, listen, church, there is nothing uh, to borrow from my son. In the in the true sense of the word, good or there is nothing good or better. There's nothing that exceeds that supersedes that that is far above our God. He possesses the highest degree of all that is good. And so not only are we to confess God's goodness in general terms, right? The, the psalmist does say, the psalms do say, the Lord is good and he does good. And that's true. But here in Psalm 16, David, he is inviting us to not keep it generalized, but to personalize this confession. And to say it with honest lips and a full heart, you alone, God. You are my standard. You are my source. You are my supplier. You are my sum. And you are the substance of all of my goodness. I am running nowhere else. For I in you, I have all that I need. You are my good. And so be my good. Give me grace to see, taste and see that you are good. You alone, God, you alone can satisfy my soul. The Lord, he is our God. David tells us this morning, the Lord, he is our good. But finally, the Lord, he is our life. Read with me verses 6 through 11, where David says this. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore... My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so throughout my pastorate so far, I've encouraged you that when you are reading and we are reading through the Old Testament, Again, shameless plug in our two-year Bible reading plan. If, you, if you've fallen off, that's okay. Pick it right back up uh, on today's date and let's just roll with it. It's important that we spend time regularly in God's word. But, but as we're reading through the Old Testament, it is important, it is vital for us to see how a passage we're reading in the Old Testament, how it points us to or how it prepares us for the coming of Christ. A fancy, very fancy way to say it is we want to read our Bibles Christocentrically. In other words, with Christ at the center of God's word. Indeed, in Luke 24, after Jesus's resurrection, Luke 24 says that Jesus taught the disciples how all the law of Moses, how the Psalms and the prophets, how all the Old Testament, how it points to himself. And so with that in mind, Let me read what the Apostle Peter says in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 32. If you you want to flip there, you can. You don't have to. But Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 32. In his very first sermon, Peter says this. He says, This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible, church, it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Does this sound familiar? Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter goes on to say, Brothers, I may say to you with full confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him, sworn an oath with him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. David, he foresaw and spoke in this psalm, Psalm chapter 16, Peter says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. And so fresh off of Jesus' instruction in Luke 24, the apostle Peter, he says in Acts 2, that when David wrote Psalm 16, specifically verses 8 through 11, he was looking beyond his own situation and instead he was prophesying about and he was pointing to the resurrection of Christ that would happen a thousand years later. And so just as a reminder, church, that word Christ, right, it's not Jesus's last name. I remember, I, I think I shared this story with you before, but we were playing outside in, in our driveway and the neighborhood kids came over and, uh, and one of the, the girls, she's a, a sweet six-year-old girl, she, she said, oh, we were talking about Jesus and, and uh, she said, oh, I love Jesus. But I just can't remember his last name. And, uh, and, and so a lot of times, right, we, we think of Christ, you know, like maybe, maybe that's like, like that sweet six-year-old kid. Maybe we don't realize it's not his last name, but we, we, we don't understand the significance of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And so that word Christ, it literally means the anointed one. It's, it's the Greek version of saying he is the Messiah. It was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And, and so in the Old Testament, this Messiah figure, he was the one on whom... All of God's people placed their hopes upon this Messiah. He was to be God's promised king. If, if maybe you're a little fuzzy on what it means to be Messiah, this is, a, I think, a short, succinct definition. The Messiah was God's promised king to save God's people from their sins. And so what does all of this mean? David is looking beyond a thousand years later to the coming of Messiah And he's saying this, church, that all of our hope, it rests on the resurrection of Christ, on the resurrection of the Messiah. And so in other words, because the resurrection is true, we can be confident of verse 1. That if God is powerful enough to overcome the grave and to raise his son from the dead, then he is powerful enough to be a mighty refuge for us. And to preserve us for eternity. Because the resurrection is true, we can know that verse 2 is true. And that one day we will get to experience all the fullness of God's goodness in the land of the living. In the new Jerusalem for all eternity. And because the resurrection is true, we can know that verse 3 is true as well. That in heaven we will not delight only in being in God's presence. But we will also delight in being in the presence of God's people and we'll never cease to be made to be amazed as we hear one after the other the stories of grace how god has redeemed a multitude from every tribe tongue language and people because of the resurrection is true we can say as for the saints in the land they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight and because the resurrection is true we can know that verses five through six are true that there is a waiting for us one day a beautiful inheritance laid up for us in heaven. Because the resurrection is true, 
we can know that verses 9 through 10 are true. And that since we are in Christ, and we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and so I hope you know what it means by now for us to be in Christ, what that word means, in Christ. Since we have been united to him by faith, then what is true of him is now true of us as well. We, we know that because Jesus did not see corruption, but was rather raised from the dead, so it will be for us as well. Listen, brothers and sisters, never forget our death in this lifetime. It's a passing from life to life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Because when we die, the veil gets lifted and we get to see the glory of Christ in full. Because the resurrection is true, we know also that verse 11 is true. Because we've been given new hearts because we've been made alive to the life of God, we know that the path of life, it is the pathway to God's presence. Before Jesus, only the high priest of Israel could enter into the most holy place, and he could only do so one time a year. But now, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been given unlimited access into the presence of God, because the Holy Spirit, he dwells within us. The path of life, it is the pathway to God's presence. For it's in his presence where we find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And so some some participation on your part. I'm going to ask two questions and you can respond to me. They're not rhetorical, so I invite your response. Church, what is fuller than full? Not a trick question. What is fuller than full? Nothing, right? Nothing. Nothing can be fuller than full, right? What is fuller than full? Nothing. I'm checking to see if you're awake. You know, hey, I told you we might get out early, but I might be preaching longer if you're if you're sleeping. So, uh, yeah. yeah. What what is what is longer than forever? Nothing, right? And so, listen, church. We have the immense pleasure and privilege of communing with our God. And spending time with him in his presence through his word and, with, and through prayer. And while we still ourselves before him, when we still ourselves before him, and when we walk in his presence through the doorway of repentance and faith, it is there where we will find the satisfaction our hearts have been longing for our entire lives. And we have that promise that God's joy in his presence, nothing can get better than that. It's full. God's pleasure In his presence, nothing can outdo that, and it's forever more. So listen, church, why would we chase after the things of this world when we have all we need in God's presence? Blaise Pascal, the the, the 17th century scientist, you probably have heard this quote before, but he's a scientist, mathematician, theologian, brilliant guy. Um, He once said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known to us through Jesus Christ. So I just want to remind you, church, your deepest longings and the emptiness within your soul, it can only be satisfied by God himself. For only in his presence can you find true joy. Only there can you find your highest happiness. And only in his presence Can you find lasting and enduring pleasure? And while our 
experience of God's presence. And while it's still tainted by sin, yes, in this lifetime, listen, there is coming a day because the resurrection is true. There is coming a day when God will save us and he will cleanse us from the very presence of sin itself. And so on that day, and then for all eternity, we will experience the undiluted, unfettered, undiminished, perfect, infinite, and unending goodness, joy, and pleasure of God for all eternity. Even the holiest moments we experience in this lifetime, they do not compare for what we will enjoy in heaven every day for all eternity. And so I think there is, maybe sometimes there is, I know there's within my own heart, But I think there's maybe a a temptation within all of us to live as though the temporary were eternal and to live as though the eternal were temporary. We, We get those flipped, I think, maybe far too often. We get a bit myopic in life, only looking to live for the here and the now. And so, church, because this awaits us one day, because heaven is ours, because this is our future, I want you to live for this week and for the rest of your lives, to live for what will last for all eternity. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Because the resurrection is true, may what David said about the coming Messiah be also true of us in verse 8, where he says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This is the confidence that the resurrection gives us. And so I want to close by asking you this morning, is that your firm conviction? Can you say along with David with full confidence, the Lord, he is my God. The Lord, he is my good. And the Lord, he is my life. Let's ask the Lord, let's daily ask the Lord to preserve us, to keep us seeking after him to keep us from chasing after the empty cisterns of this world. And let's pray that God would give us grace, that we would seek his face and we would seek the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore that are found in his presence. Listen, what you need in life to be most happy, it isn't more of this world. What you need in life to be most happy is more of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.